So last week we introduced uh, a couple things, but the, the quadriga is the tool that I want us to, to focus on and, and explore this week and next week. And the next, really, it's the, next, the whole class is going to be walking through and exploring different aspects of that. And remember that the quadriga, that, that name means a, a four-horsed chariot, uh, but it's, it's always within church history uh, there's always been this four sense, these four movements, these four aspects of biblical interpretation. Now, they don't always follow the same order and so on and so forth. Um, but I was, I was reading this morning by one of the, the church fathers, and, and he likewise brought up the four movements or the four aspects of Scripture that we are to, to read and understand and move through as we, as we study God's Word. So the first one is the historical Right? And this is where we're going to focus our time uh, this evening, is looking at what does the text actually say, and how do we study the text, and how do we read the text? It is, it is an incredibly rich and full book for us, with multiple genres written over thousands of years by all sorts of different authors to different audiences, um, all testifying to a very similar story, but from different perspectives. So we want to to learn to read it appropriately. What we don't want to do is pick up the Bible and read it as if it is just one book written by one human author with one style and one interpretation the whole way through, right? The whole thing is not like an article in an encyclopedia that you would just kind of read through and, and trust it with, with one genre and so on. So we want to explore it, understand how to handle it. As we study God's Word and we place our, our faith in it. We, we place ourselves underneath of it as it is our authority with interpretation. Um, it affects us. It changes us. Um, and we are always to, to live our lives under the weight of God's word. Um, and so as, as we wrestle through it, we, we move to the second movement, which we're calling the typological, right? When we get to the typological movement, we want to, to begin to say, okay, I understand the historical facts of, of the text, I understand the genre, I understand some of the words that are being used. I know, <coughs> I think I understand the author's intended meaning. Uh, I've done some historical background study. I, 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 I'm getting what's going on here. Now, how is this text pointing me to Christ, right? And, and how does it point us to Christ is really kind of a, well, there's three aspects to it. One is how does it bring us to, to the cross and the resurrection and the life of Jesus. That's the most direct line. But when we think about wanting to find Christ in all of the scriptures, it's the whole Christ. As Augustine says, the totus Christus, the, the entire, the total Christ, which is both the head and the body, right? So as we, as we wrestle through the scriptures, we want to see how does this prepare us not only for the person and work of Christ in his incarnation, but also his bride, his body, his people, right? So we, we, we see this coming up throughout the scriptures. And the direction that we go uh, is not always just a straight line, right? It is, the, the text is more like a mosaic, and we want to, or a stained glass, if you would, a stained glass window, which is a sort of mosaic. We want to look at each piece and see how this piece connects to the next piece. And as you work your way through and see all the different connections and how this works out, then you step back and you see it's like, yeah, Christ is right at the center of this. So, for example, we don't want to go from Moses 
to Jesus in a straight line. Jesus is the greater Moses. I mean, Hebrews comes out and tells us that, right? We go to Hebrews chapter 2 and just say, well, there it is. That's an easy connection for us to make. But there's all sorts of other Moseses in the Bible, Joshua being one of them. And then Moses is actually another Adam of sorts and another Abraham of sorts. There's all of these connections. So we want to be patient with the text. And we want to not miss out on any of it. We want to, to take the, the slow road and go where the text takes us and follow the different connections. And that's what we do here. Um, and, and to know how to do this, uh, we have to have our, our feet firmly planted in the text itself. We don't want any sort of fantical or, or kind of outrageous ideas about the text that the, the Bible doesn't support, right? And that's, that's one of the dangers when we just go directly here. Uh, there have been interpreters in, in, throughout church history who, who love to take every little um, aspect of Scripture and, and connect it to some sort of analogy or figure or allegory or type or whatever you want to call it that the, the Bible doesn't really make that connection for us. So we, we want to follow the text where it takes us, ultimately to Christ and to his church. So when we read it this way, we then come to the moral movement. And the moral now that we see what the text is saying, we see Christ and his bride and, and redemptive history all working out in it, now we know how we are to be affected by it by the text. Now we know how to, to live, how to apply it, how to love our neighbors and love God. Augustine says in one of his letters, says the whole weight of the text is to teach the reader how to love God and love neighbor. Right? If it's not doing those two things, he said, go back and read it again, no matter what text it is. Right? That is the goal of Bible reading, love God and love our neighbors. And obviously what it means to love God is multifaceted. What it means to love our neighbors is multifaceted. And we have to use the Bible's definition of, of love and so on. But that happens here. And we can't know how to love God. And we can't know how to love our neighbors without understanding Christ at the center and without understanding the text itself. So once we move past that piece, the moral, we come to the eschatological that all of Scripture is going somewhere, right? The, the, the Bible is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It is God's redemptive story, his plan, his power, his kingship is not just from when the, the text was written, but it is today, and it will go on through tomorrow and the next day, which is really good news for us, right? That Christ is on the throne no matter what, um, so when we read the text, we want to see where, where is this going? Where is this taking us? What is the ultimate fulfillment of this? Uh, and how does this change my perspective for tomorrow? What is the hope that this text gives me? And, and what I love about this, this movement here is that, it, it, as I mentioned last week, it incorporates the three pillars of the Christian faith, which is faith. It tells us how to believe, right? We see Christ at the very center. We see uh, his, his church at the very center. This, this teaches us how to believe. This teaches us how to love. So you have faith, love, and then hope. Right. So built within this reading of the text, we, we work through the three pillars of the Christian faith, which is faith, hope, and love. 
All right, are there any questions or clarity I can bring to this before we jump into the historical piece? Or any questions from last week that we didn't have time to answer? Right. So, and that's where a lot of errors can happen. Uh, that the order, I think, is very important, right? So if, and let's just assume we're always starting with the text itself, right? If we, if we want to do Bible reading, we should not read the newspaper and then come back to the text and use the newspaper as our foundation, right? Or a blog or whatever you want to call it. The text has to be our starting point. So we'll assume that, um, if we start anywhere else, we've got all sorts of other issues that we need to deal with. But if we, if we start here and we go to eschatological first, and there's a lot of people who do this, and, and a lot of the folks who do this would be called uh, the prosperity gospel folks or health and wealth gospel or uh, even easy believism to a, to a certain degree. Uh, that is to say, I know what the Bible says, I'm reading it, and I know I'm going to heaven when I die and everything else doesn't matter. And then what does my future look like? Well, according to the Bible, it's quite glorious, right? So then we, you know, folks that have to see this over-realized eschatology where we kind of take some of these, these glories. Does anybody else need notes? Got a few, few around. <clears throat> it's kind of over-realized future reality that would come into the presence that, that this doesn't allow. If we were to go, <coughs> excuse me, from historical to typological and stay there, this is what the German scholars have been doing for, for centuries. I mean, the liberalism that has come over from the Dutch theologians and the German theologians, they love this, right? I mean, they, they sit in the text all day long to make all of these connections and they, they do all of this work in, in the word, yet it, it, it goes no further. So this just turns into scholasticism. If we go here... First, then we have a moralistic reading of the text, right? That we read the Bible, and what we're looking for is, what am I supposed to do here? I, I don't care what Christ, that Christ is at the center, that he actually changes how we are to, to do what we are to do. Uh, but if we go from here to here, it turns into moralism, it can turn into legalism, and so on. And then if we truncate it, if we just go from historical to typological to moral then we're really missing out on the stream and the flow of redemptive history, right? I think one of the things that hurts the American church so much is to think that our, our entire faith is about what's happened in the past and what is happening in the future is, it, it, it just doesn't get worked into our reading, right? It doesn't, what are we to do with our kids and the next generation? The Bible's very concerned about to the thousandth, to the thousandth generation, uh, it's very concerned about this families growing and building and communities and churches and all of that, uh, and the promises of God flow right through His people to to one generation to the next, and let alone all all of the the prophecies and promises of what God will do in redemptive history. If we don't go here, we miss out on the flow of the text. It's like if if the text is a a stream. Uh, it, it'd almost be like we would, we would dam up the stream and just kind of splash around in the, 
and the waters here and not go any further. So I think the way the Bible reads itself is it, is it works all the way through to, to the final hope at the end. That's a good question. Other questions? Okay, so in your notes, let's, let's look at the first sense, the historical sense. And this, is, this one is a lot of fun because it's very concrete. It's very, um, we're able to wrestle with it, uh, with the text itself. And we're going to start with things as simple as what, what's the deal with all of the translations, right? If we're going to study the Bible, what translation should we use? So we'll start there and kind of work our way all the way uh, through at least as much as we can in a little over an hour. All right, so the first sense of the quadriga, the historical sense of the text, this is the absolute foundation for understanding the rest of the Bible. If we do not read the text and kind of wrestle with the words that are on the page and the historical facts of the text, then uh, we, we we will quickly become disenchanted, bored, confused, and so on, right? There's work that must be done in the text. So if you would, if you have your Bibles or on your phones, turn to Mark chapter 11. We'll kind of give an example of what I mean by just the historical reading of of the text. So Mark chapter 11, let's look at verses 15 through 19. And I'll read these these verses for us. This is the story of Jesus cleansing the temple. Okay, he says, And they came to Jerusalem, that is, Jesus and his disciples. If we go back to chapter, uh, the beginning of chapter 11, we see the triumphal entry, right? So this is near the end of Jesus' life. He's in Jerusalem after the triumphal entry. They've hailed him king of the Jews, the, the son of David, and so on. So he enters the temple in his last week in Jerusalem. Right? So that's some of the context that we want to do, like what, what's going on in the time frame of Jesus' life when he enters the temple. So we look back at the context, say, okay, triumphal entry, the cross is coming, and so on. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold those who, brought, uh, who, who bought in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it into a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. All right, so... What we, where we want to start with this is there are certain concepts that we will see pop up into, into the text, certain, um, certain pins, if you would, that we want to say, I want to, I want to know what this is about. So first is they came to Jerusalem. If you have this spatial movement of traveling, we want to pay attention to that, right? They, they, there's a movement here. There's a, there's a change in the text. And, and we'll, we'll unpack these in more detail later. So this is just a, a kind of a little overview. Um, and they came to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a big deal in the Bible, big deal in Jesus' ministry. Uh, so why is it a big deal? And then we need to know that as well. And he entered the temple. Now the temple in John's gospel, as we've already seen, is the, the big 
enemy. It's the antagonist, right? Jesus is the protagonist. The temple itself is the antagonist. It is Jesus versus the temple. This is what John wants us to, to wrestle with as we go through his gospel. And he starts it off with all that temple imagery in the first chapter. In the second chapter, he mention, mentions it. Uh, in the third, he's dealing with Nicodemus, who's a scribe, a Pharisee. He knows the temple well. It is this conflict. So we can see that from even the other gospels. But then as we look at Mark's gospel, we see that the temple has a role there as well, a very similar role. So he enters the temple, so we want to know what that's all about. And he began to drive out those, uh, those who sold and those who bought in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. This is another practice we'd want to, to, to ask, what's going on here? Why is it that people are buying and selling in the temple? Is this okay? Jesus seems to have a problem with it. What, what's the deal here? Um, is this a normal thing? Is this a sign of their rebellion? So there's all of these questions. And some of those questions would lead us back to Deuteronomy, where we actually find out that buying and selling in the temple is perfectly fine. In fact, God ordained it, <laughs> that if you were to travel to the temple and you couldn't bring your sacrifice with you, you could sell your sacrifice, bind up the money, put it in your pocket, go to the temple, and buy a sacrifice. It's kind of hard to travel 60 miles with a bunch of turtle doves, you know, or, or a bull. Uh, it's much easier to sell it and then to buy it at, at the temple. That's, that's not a problem. So it's not the buying and selling that's the issue. So if we were to continue to read, so we, we want to know what is the issue. Uh, and I think verse, uh, verse 17 really emphasizes this. First of all, there's a quote that we would want to wrestle with. Uh, and then your, your uh, cross-references in your Bible, if you have them, you can go to verse 17, and you'll see cited from Isaiah 56, 7, and Jeremiah 7, 11. So he actually combines two different Old Testament texts here. So then we'd want to go there and say, well, what's the context of that? Let, let's read that and understand it. But I think the real issue comes out when he says, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? So if we did our, our study in the temple, what we would find out is the temple is built something like this, right? This is the Temple Mount, and then here's the Holy of Holies and, and all that good stuff that's going on. And then you have a big courtyard here, and it's massive, right? And then out here in the entrance is the court of the Gentiles. So this is where the nations could come in, those who were not circumcised but wanted to trust in God. They were not allowed back here yet, right? When Christ comes, he is the new temple, and he allows the whole nations to come in. But what's, what's going on here is that these sellers... And in the Jewish culture at this time in Jerusalem, despise the Gentiles. They're not getting along well at all. So really, there's no, they're taking up all the room here with their, their little state fair and booths that they have going on that they're not allowing the Gentiles to come in and worship and be a part of God's gracious invitation for them to come to the temple and offer sacrifices. So that's really the struggle. And we see some of that going on in Jeremiah and other places where they've turned it into a den of robbers. So they're looking more to... Uh, yeah, oppress the Gentiles as opposed to letting them come in. And then he says, you've made it, yeah, you made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him. So wh why is that? Why are the chief priests and the scribes upset by this? Well, there's, there's a couple reasons. One, uh, the temple is their business, <laughs> Right? It is, it is how they make their living. The, the priests aren't allowed to work outside of the temple. Right? 
And if the temple's bringing in money, they're doing okay. And they kind of turned it into a business where they're doing really pretty well. Uh, so they get pretty upset. If you come in and destroy my place of employment, we have a problem here. And not only that, but the people were very impressed with Jesus, as we see in verse 18, that they were astonished. So now Jesus has come in and he's taken the place of the scribes and the Pharisees as their leader. So these, these are some of the, the ways that we want to read the text and say every part of this story matters. Right? We want to understand exactly what's going on here. And then, and, and we'll do this in a, in a little while, but even when, if we were to come up here with the text, all of a sudden the whole world of the Bible opens up. And we see what's going on with actually cleansing a temple. Like where else do houses or buildings get cleansed? And we go to the leprosy laws in, in Leviticus, and we find out, man, the, the chief priest or the priest is supposed to go in and inspect the house and see if there's leprosy. If there is, he takes everybody out and lets it go, and then if he comes back in later, and if it's still there, he cuts it out, and eventually the whole house will be demolished, right? So, so there's, there's more going on than just shady business practices and not letting people worship God, and that's, that's how, how we will work through this passage. But anyways, um, that's kind of an overview of what it looks like to do that, but to get the details in our English Bibles, unless you know Greek and Hebrew, you're going to rely on an English Bible. And there are some that are really, really, they're all actually really pretty good. I think there's a couple that are really bad, that are agenda-driven. Uh, but whether you're reading the message or the King James Version or the NIV, whatever it is, if, if you are bringing these stories and if you're reading it and wrestling with the text, that's good. They're all really good translations. The issue comes down to when we study the text, right? When we really get in, when we want to do some of these word studies, are we going to see the details that the ESV brings out, for example? So in your notes, um, I have some of the translation theory and philosophy of translating, and we won't spend too much time on this, but I think it's really helpful to understand that there are there are really uh, two or three main ways of, of translating, or when you look at your Bibles, they're going to be verbal equivalencies, right? There's a, a verbal equivalence, which is basically to say, as much as possible, I'm taking the word of, the, of Greek and the best translation for the, that Greek word in the context of the Greek text or the Hebrew text, and I'm going to try to hit right at the center of the target with the English language, Okay? So word-for-word, word, verbal um, equivalence, as much as possible. <coughs> Excuse me. And then next, you have a dynamic equivalency, which is basically to say, I know what the Greek is actually saying, and if I just plug an English word in for the Greek word and rearrange the syntax a little bit so it makes sense, um, the meaning isn't coming out in the English. So what we're going to do is we're going to use different phrases and different words, and we'll put in some filler words even in English in order to bring out the meaning of the text, which is, which is great. Both are great in different ways. And then you have paraphrases at the end, which is basically, uh, it simplifies the text, uh, and, and it, it, it does a, a paraphrase. It looks at the whole thing and basically says, this is, this is the story that's being told here. So if you want to get familiar with Leviticus, go ahead and read a paraphrase. Read the message. Read, um, well, I have a chart there for you. I think I'm, I have it on here too. Yeah. 
this is, this is a helpful, helpful chart that kind of shows you where your translation falls on, on the spectrum. Um, all the way at the end, word for word, you have the interlinears, which is the Greek text with an English translation right underneath of it, okay? The next, you have the NASB, that's a New American Standard Bible. Fantastic Bible, just really difficult to read, especially out loud or read narratives. It's just, it's so clunky. Um, it's challenging. The Amplified, does anybody have an Amplified Bible? Yeah? Okay, the Amplified, <clears throat> I feel like kind of be, belongs there and all the way at the end, and it kind of covers the whole spectrum. Because what the Amplified does is it takes the original word, um, so we could take the word um, agape, right, love, and, and you could read, for God so agape the world, for God so loved, he beloved, he cared for, he, he cherished, he nourished the world, right? And he goes through like the whole, the whole lexical range of, of the word that it could mean, and they put it all there in the text, which is, which is okay, but then you have, um, you have a translating team that is basically really uh, altering how we view the text when we read the, the, the Amplified. So if you read it, Understand that it can be very good and it can go all the way over to thought for thought and then it's not as literal as they would like to say. Then you get the ESV, that's what we use here at the church. I think it's still clunky at times to read, but it's, I think it's a lot easier than the NASB. The RSV, that's Revised Standard Version, KJV, New King James, the HCSB, I think they just changed that to the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. Um, so that's a fairly new one. The NRSV, those have been around, New American Bible, and then it, it, you get into ones that no one's ever really heard of um, until you get to the NLT. Uh, one of the, the nice things about the thought-for-thought thought translations, and the NLT is probably my favorite one out of the thought-for-thought, thought, is Hebrew is a very fluid, poetic language. Greek is very scientific, logical, right? It's, there's not a lot of ambiguity with Greek. With Hebrew, it is very much, um, very, it, it's very free-flowing, and, and there, there's so much wordplay, and there's all of this stuff that's going on. So to do a word-for-word word in Hebrew, which is why the Old Testament is often harder to read than the New when we do the word-for-word um, word translations, uh, because Hebrew language actually leans more toward thinking about it thought for thought. Now, there's a lot of responsibility that comes with that, and words matter tremendously. So there are, there are times and there's places for, for the thought for thought that I think is actually a benefit, particularly in some of the poetry and, and so on in the, in the Hebrew Bible. But anyways, I'm not going to go through all of those. You can see the message all the way at the end. That's Eugene Peterson's. Somebody posted a psalm or emailed me a psalm uh, today. And I didn't realize it was out of the message. I started reading it. I'm like, what on earth is this? <laughs> you know? It's like, and they're all out for a walk, just hanging out, you know? And uh, the weather looked kind of shady, so they decided to do it. <laughs> this is not the Bible. What is this? Oh, it's the message. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Um, so when it comes to, to really studying, right, to really to, to, to wrestle with the text, you want to lean as much as you can for the word for word. But don't, don't, don't be embarrassed or ashamed or guilty for doing the thought for thought to work through big chunks of scripture and read through it. I had a professor one time that said the best translation is the one that you're going to read. And I think he's absolutely right, right? If you're gonna read it, that's the best one for you. 
Um, but certainly when it comes to study, there are benefits of some of the other, some over others. All right. So yeah, oftentimes uh, people will boast about their word-for-word translations. And I have a, a buddy who is part of the, he's like a, he's promoting the new NASB project that's happening. They're kind of revising it. I think they're calling it the Legacy Bible, which is great. I'm really happy that they're doing it. But it's like, yes, this is the word-for-word. This is the ultimate, you know. Even the ESV back in 2016, I think it was, they said, here's the final, the final translation. And everybody's like, what are you talking about? Like, you can't, you can't just say, this is it, we've arrived, right? This is the best that English language can do when it comes to the word of God. Um, because if we were to, and I, ha- I have some examples here in your text, if we were to do a word-for-word translation, it would make no sense, <laughs> right? I mean, look at, we, we looked at David and Goliath a little bit yesterday. In your notes, I have the interlinear there, uh, 1 Samuel 17, 5. And when you read Hebrew, you have to go from right to left, right? So it's not left to right, it's right to left. So if we were to do that, it would say something like this, and, and this is true, it, a helmet of bronze his head on was um, with a body of armor uh, and scales, or of and scales, and of scales, something like that. Uh, he, and then just clothes, that was in brackets there, that's just to help us out, right? He clothed. Uh, the weight of an armor body, the 5,000 shekels was, <laughs> right? Like, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Um, it's, very, it's very challenging. And then a very popular verse that we all know is John 3.16. And here, and then the Greek, it flows so beautifully, right? It really does. Because once you understand how the Greek language works, you're, you're waiting for that next word to come and and modify the one that you just read, and you, you see that the words that come first, and they actually amplify, and they speak to the rest of the words. It, it works together in some really cool ways. Um, but John three sixteen, literally, word for word, would be, thusly for love the God, the world, so that the Son, the only born, he gave, that all, the one trusting uh, into him, uh, not might be destroyed, but might have life eternal. Right? That's... So when we boast word for word, it's just, it's not true. (laughs) Um, We are doing the best that we can, but word order matters in the Bible, big time, right? Greek, both Greek and Hebrew, where you place the word shows emphasis. So we we cannot say we have a perfect translation, a perfectly uh, accurate word for word translation. Uh, As soon as we try to bring it into English in a way that's understandable, we, something changes, right? So, anyways, when, when you look for a translation uh, for, for study, try to go to that word-to-word, and then uh, if you want to do long stretches of reading, which I highly recommend, potentially look for the thought for thought. All right, so when we get into to the word, for example, if, we're, if we were to go back to, to Mark, uh, chapter 15, we want to ask questions about what is it that I'm reading, okay? What is it that I'm reading? So... You have different genres in the Bible, and there's seven of them. I believe you have a fill in the blank there. The first is narrative, okay? Narrative genre. Narrative is what you'll find in uh, parts of Genesis. You'll find it in parts of Exodus. You'll find it uh, in parts of Numbers. You'll find it a lot in Samuel and Kings and Chronicles. Um, You'll find it 
and, and some other, other places, right? Narrative is, is just a historical telling of, of the story, of the facts of that's, that's going on here. So when we read this, we want to understand how are we to interpret narrative passages of Scripture, right? For example, if, if we think about different genres, we can do this easily with, with books that we buy. Um, if you buy a, a, um, a textbook on U.S. history, uh, you're going to read this with a different set of lenses on than if you were to buy a historical fiction, right? Or, a non, or, or, or even a nonfiction, right? The, the way that you read it, you engage it differently. Um, and then if you were to, to buy um, a book of satire, right? <laughs> a story of satire on U.S. history, you can't read that the same way that you read the textbook, or you're gonna be all sorts of confused, and you won't get the jokes, right? And, that's, and we'll get into that next week, but the Bible's packed full of jokes. The Bible is, God loves to tell jokes in the Bible, and he does so in such incredible ways. It's like the movie Shrek. If you watch the movie Shrek, it is packed full of jokes, and if you've never watched any um, fairy tale stories, if you're unaware of, of uh, the Muffin Man and you know, Sleeping Beauty and Rapunzel, if, you're just, if you have no clue, you're just watching Shrek, this is so stupid. Like, it doesn't make any sense. But they're, they're pulling from all sorts of other genres, from other movies, other stories, and they're wrapping it up. And the joke is there if you get it, which is why kids will watch it and they'll laugh at certain spots. Adults will watch it and laugh at other spots, right? Because so many of the jokes go over the kids' heads, but the adults get it. The Bible's packed full. That's how God writes the Bible. It's packed full of jokes like that. So we want to be attuned to the stories and say, oh, I know what you're doing there. You know, I, I get this. That it, it's starting to click and make sense. And genre is a, a helpful way for us to understand the joke, understand how God is weaving it together and playing off of other stories and other passages. Um, Hebrews, we went through Hebrews for Exodus Institutes. And, and don't, don't hear me saying joke as being ir irreverent. I don't mean that at all. Uh, but, but the point of getting a joke, Hebrews is, is a very comedic book, right? If you don't know the Old Testament, Hebrews doesn't make sense. And same with Revelation. Revelation, it's, it's just about every verse. is either a quote, an allusion, an echo, a cross-reference to the Old Testament. You need the Old Testament to get Revelation. So if we don't know the Old Testament, we're not going to get the joke, if you would, of, of the book of Revelation, so, yeah, we've got to pay attention to all that stuff. And like I said, genre is helpful with that. So narrative, the second one is poetry. Poetry, you'll find poetry uh, dominates the Old Testament. In fact, there, there's a helpful way. It's not 100% foolproof. But when you go to the Old Testament and you open up your Bibles and it has the, 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 the text is broken up in a weird outline-looking form, right? It's almost like they're, the, the whole typeset is different. That's typically poetry. Not always. Sometimes poetry doesn't look like this, um, and sometimes this sort of writing will be um, apocalyptic, like in Daniel and some other things. But Psalms is packed full. If you go to Isaiah, and you just kind of go through I Isaiah, you'll see there is so much poetry in Isaiah, right? And then with poetry, there's a certain sort of uh, language that is used, right? It is, it is very symbolic language. There's a lot of figural language that's going on when Isaiah talks about the sun and the moon and the stars falling to the earth. 
uh, he is, this is poetic language. So we want to say, well, what are you talking about with sun, moon, and stars falling to the earth? Are you saying literally they're going to fall, or are you, are you alluding to something else? Um, and then when we read the context, particularly in Isaiah, we see he's actually talking about um, Babylon and Assyria and these, these nations that will, that will result or have the same fate as like the sun, moon, and stars falling. So then we have to think to ourselves, well, well why is that? Why is he connecting the sun, moon, and stars to these empires, these kingdoms that are falling? So then we go, well, let's start at the beginning. We go back to Genesis, and we see that there's symbolic power infused into creation when he says, and he created the sun, the moon, and the stars, and what are they to do? They are to rule the sky. They're rulers. Rules the day, rules the night. And all throughout uh, the Bible, Kings and rulers are associated with the sun, moon, and stars. In fact, not just throughout the Bible, but even today. Our flag has stars on it. There's a reason for that. You look at most flags, and they have either a sun, a moon, or stars represented um, on their flag to talk about how they rule, because there's this connection with sun, moon, and stars and rulers all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. So poetry loves to do that, right? It's very, not to be redundant, but poetic, (laughs) with that sort of stuff. Then you have wisdom literature. Wisdom literature would be Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes, um, yes, Ecclesiastes. There's also poetry in Ecclesiastes. Uh, And then there's wisdom literature all throughout the scripture as well um, in different places. Wisdom literature cannot be read like narrative. It can't be read like a textbook. And we often go into great distress and have a hard time trusting the Bible when the Bible says, raise up your child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, there's, all sorts of, there's a way to interpret that that's, that's helpful. But if we just read it like that, we say, I did that, and my child is an atheist. <laughs> like, the Bible lied to me. I said, no, no, this is wisdom literature. The Proverbs are speaking of what is generally true, how we ought to live our lives. Uh, it is not, they're not promises uh, like... Um, some prophecy or in the Gospels or in, in Paul's letters. Uh, they're not narrative that are saying, here are the historical facts. It's wisdom literature. Uh, there are ways for us to understand this is how we are to live, and this is what is pleasing to God, and this is how the outcome um, will look. But it's not guaranteed, and God is not a liar if you did everything you could just right to raise your children, and then they walk away from the Lord. Um, the Bible wasn't wrong, Right? Okay, so you have wisdom, then you have prophecy, which you have, uh, we know the major prophets and the minor prophets. And then you have prophecy throughout uh, different sections, even in Genesis and and others. And and prophecy, the the genre of prophecy is very much like poetry, um, and it's happy to use symbolism and so on. You have uh, a gospel genre, uh, the Gospels that we read are not just narrative. They're actually their own genre, their own, um, their own style of writing that follows Christ, uh, this, this Gospel. In fact, there's some historians that say the Gospel um, genre is, it was actually one that really came out of the life of Christ, and then it has gone from there. You have the Gospel of Thomas. You've got all these other Gospels that are out there that's speaking in part of a, a type of writing that is used mainly with teaching, 
dialogue, and back and forth, and so on. Epistles, those are letters that are written. Uh, so that, that you could read with a little bit more um, assumptions of you're just talking to me, but also being aware, like we do in conversations, that um, analogies can be used, allegories can be used, right? There's, it's conversational, so you, we just want to pay attention to the movements in the text. <clears throat> and then apocalyptic, which is Revelation and uh, the second part of Daniel. All right, so th- those are the, the different genres of the, the scriptures. And then <clears throat> within genre, you also have a form. And a form, if you see the genre, the form zooms in onto that, and it actually begins to explain the genre a little bit more. So, for example, parables are a, t- are a form of a genre, right? They're the form within a gospel is, is parables. Um, healing stories, that is a form. A lot of healing stories will take a very similar shape in the text. So that's a, a particular form within a genre as a whole. So genre will give a general sense of the text. Form will bring in the particulars a little bit more. All right, any questions on, on that piece? All right, then authorship. And this is an incredibly important piece when we come to just studying the word of God. We have to wrestle with authorship. And up front, we always want to see there are two authors to the text, right? You have the human author, and then you have the divine author, or God himself. Uh, Scripture is not just merely a collection of historical documents that were written by men who passed away thousands of years ago, and then God approved these documents. That's a, that's a popular thing, kind of like a, an inauguration speech, right? You have a speechwriter that, that writes it, and then the president might stand up and say it, and by him saying it, he, he affirms what was written. There's an aspect that is true of that, but that's, that's not how we should view it um, on, on one side where it's just completely the human author, and then God kind of gives a thumbs up. We also don't want to view it on the other side where the human author is passive and his eyes kind of roll into the back of his head and he's just in a trance writing, right? Neither one of those um, are, are overly helpful, but the, the issue is right in the middle. So when we look at it, we never want to separate the human and the divine author, uh, but we want to understand that all of Scripture is breathed out, inspired by God. From beginning of the Scriptures all the way to the end, we see the mind and the heart, the fingerprints of God all throughout it. Every word, even, even down to the word order, is something that God in his sovereign hand is involved with, okay? Uh, the story of scripture is, is his story, and he has his people write his story uh, according to his plan. God weaves the scriptures together with supernatural intentionality, Right? They are weaved together with a supernatural intentionality. And the tapestry that is a scripture, uh, when we look at it, we see that he has woven into it all these glorious treasures that we are, as good Bible readers, as good kings, as Proverbs 25 talks about, these glorious treasures all woven throughout the pages of scripture, and we are to go and search them out. So we always want to discover the divine author's meaning and the connections to the text. But we also do that, again, not separate from, you don't do one and then you do the other, right? It's, it's one, one way of looking at it. You see the human author. Each book of the Bible is written by 
a human person. They are written with that author's style, that author's personality, that author's education level, uh, that, auth- that author's preference, <coughs> excuse me, preferences, and so on. Uh, when you re- we're going through John. As we go through John, we see very similar vocabulary in the Gospel of John to the letters of John, and even into Revelation. There's a lot of similar vocabulary. And the structures of, of these books actually work together, and you begin to kind of see who he is um, as you read it. You, John or James or Peter or Luke or whomever, their, their personalities come out of the text. Um, so we want to, want to acknowledge that. And we want to see the differences between Paul's writing and Peter's writings because they are different and they have different perspectives when they come to um, wrestling with different doctrinal issues. Okay. Um, yeah. Are there any questions on authorship? I don't want to spend too much time on that. We will continue to unpack this, certainly as we, as we move through the quadriga. Okay. So the, the big piece for, for this evening that I want us to look at, and we'll pretty much finish our time here, uh, is on structure of the text. So when we come to uh, the, the Bible... We are given a structure. Structure is so much fun when reading the Bible. It really is. Um, we are given a structure, right? When we write a paper, uh, we're teaching, you know, you teach your kids to write an essay. It's like, okay, you start with like the most basic outline, introduction, body, conclusion, right? If you're trying to prove something, you might do introduction. You might do counter argument, argument, conclusion, or you might do you know, one, two, three premises, you know, rebuttal, conclusion, whatever it might be, right? We have these structures that we are taught on how to, to write papers, how to write letters, to whom it may concern, body, you know, sincerely, whomever. That's a structure that we're used to. Um, and the Bible, our English Bibles, have actually forced a structure onto the text for us. And we should be mostly grateful. <laughs> All right, so when we open up, up the Bible, we see, um, for one, all the different books of the Bible, there's, there's a structure even in that. And sometimes an unhelpful structure. Because if you go to Kings, First and Second Kings, you, you read through it and it's like, why is there a break at the end of First Kings going into Second Kings? Because the story just continues. Because in the original Hebrew, it's just one book. Same with First and Second Samuel, same with First and Second Chronicles. Some of the Psalms are connected, um, right? So, so we have put a structure in there that helps us read it, but then at times it can, we, it, we can get clumsy and trip over it. There's a structure in your Bibles um, with a single page that says the New Testament, right? So we break up this Bible into two big sections, Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament and New Testament, and we have a page, which I took out of my Bible. I encourage you guys to do that too. I try to say that every chance I get. Um, but... If you go to the end of Malachi, it goes right into Matthew because that, that page and that structure, I think, is one of the most unhelpful. And it actually takes away from the beauty in our thinking of this, right? The New Testament page is almost like just putting a big black line right down the middle and saying, okay, look at these things over here, then look at these things over here. And we miss it. We, it just it does something. It even subconsciously lets us, leads us to believe that there's something about the old that I don't need, but the new is... Is primacy, has primacy uh, in unhelpful ways. And then, of course, we've got, we've got chapters and we've got verses. None of these things were inspired. 
right? In fact, I have a picture of what an original, uh, an original, original manuscript would have looked like. Let me see if I put this up on the screen real quick. Oh, of course. Four. All right. Okay, so this, that's uh, a manuscript of the Greek New Testament. And uh, this is actually a somewhat updated one because there are a little bit of, there's some dots in there that wouldn't be original. So you see this dot here, right there, and one over here. Like those wouldn't be original. And when they were originally writing it, and this is close to it, there wasn't even spaces between the words. You just keep going. Right? Same thing with Hebrew. No spaces, just lots and lots of letters. Um, and, and this is what you had. So it's like, well, what structure do we see to this? <laughs> right? So it's actually to great benefit that they put verses in there for us, that they put chapters in there, that they put the little pericopes, those headlines, those headings in there. So if we're back in Mark 11 and say Jesus cleanses the temple, right? Uh, that, that's helpful for us, but we have to realize that that's not part of the original. But structure is so important. Um, it's, you know it's a spam email when there's no structure to it, right? It's just one long thing. It just keeps going. It's like, this is junk. I'm not going to read it. Um, right? Structure matters. So if we're going to be good readers of the Bible, we need to know, well, how did they structure the text? Because clearly it's not the way that we structure it. So we, we want to begin to read it and say, oh, there's actually literary devices that are used within the Hebrew and the Greek to structure the text for us. In fact, it's way more detailed than our structures, uh, and it's, it really makes the text pop often. So we'll go through some of those here. Okay, so let's see. Oh, I want to give you examples of bad structures. Uh, Philippians 4.1, if you have that in your Bible, as you read through Philippians, and we, when we did the preaching cohort, this was one of the passage, passages. I don't remember who preached it. Um, but it was like, well, how do we do Philippians 4.1? Is that part of chapter 3 or is that actually part of chapter 4? Because it, it seems like a conclusion to chapter 3, not the beginning of chapter 4. And then you have that pericope thing that comes between verse 1 and 2 of Philippians, and that just makes it look really strange. So as you read through it, the structure can actually impede upon our understanding of the text, where if we took all of that out and just read it, we would see very clearly that this is actually the conclusion of chapter 3. And chapter 4 starts with, I entreat Iota, right? No, never mind, I won't do that. Um, so that, that's one example. Uh, an, another one is all the way back in Genesis, chapter 1 into chapter 2. We read through chapter 1, and when we come to the end of chapter 1, we say, ah, I just read Genesis chapter 1. That is the, the conclusion of the creation story. Now let me start chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested. It's like, wait a second. Is that part of chapter 2? Is that part of chapter 1? And, and if we didn't have chapter numbers in there, we would say, of, of course, it's just continuing to flow. But within the text, there's a shift that takes place. Right? There's a shift, and the shift actually comes in verse 4 
with the introduction of these are the generations of. In fact, all throughout Genesis, I think there's five or six, these are the generations of, and that is the big movement from one section to the next. We see it with Adam's children. We see it with, the, uh, with Noah, with um, the, the table of nations, Noah's children that comes after. We see it with Abraham. We see it with Jacob, right? These are the generations of, and then it goes through their descendants. Uh, that's, that's the big movement from within the text, but the chapter and the pericope change, it messes that up for us. We don't know what to do with those first three verses. It's just clumsy. And then 1 Kings, at the end of 1 Kings, moving into chapter two, uh, 2 Kings, First uh, King ends right in the middle of the king's reign. Um, and then it finishes the king's reign in chapter 2, which is a very strange place to split it. So that was originally one, which would just flow through. So those are a couple uh, negative examples of what I mean by how our structure can actually hinder or uh, cause some distractions for reading the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> you have a mutiny. <laughs> I don't remember who it was, but um, it was, I think, the 12th century, I think. McNay, do you remember the guy's name? It was a huge project, and it, it was altered a little bit after, after he did it, but I think it was around the 12th century. The Hexbola? Yeah. Yeah. So it's super helpful for reference. And when you got those scrolls and all that, you're able to kind of open one up instead of having to read through the whole thing to get your bearings. You can just, it, it's, a, it's a logical structure that just makes sense for us. So <clears throat> I would never vote to get rid of them or to change them. They're super helpful. And we, have, we know our Bibles by these. So what I want us to do is to see them as transparent and be able to see through the, the English structure into the structure, structure of the text um, and not see those as roadblocks or turn signals that we should go and do something else with the text. Good question, though. All right. So in order to, to break this up uh, and, and make sense of this in their thinking, there is structure weaved all throughout the text, and it is a, they're literary devices that are used, Right? Uh, a literary device is a convention um, of, of a writing style or a format, that, that's something that you do with words, something that you do with phrases, something that um, you do with ideas that are given in the text. So I have uh, a few of them here. I don't know if you guys have blanks in that or do I list them there for you with parallelism, repetition? They're there? Okay. There, there's more than this, right? But this is a good, a good way to get started. You have parallelisms we'll get into each of these. You have repetition in the text. You have chiasms. There's chiasms from Genesis all the way to, to Revelation. Chiasms are everywhere. What's that? I'll show you in just a second. They're a lot of fun. Uh, inclusios, which we'll get into that. And then my personal favorite, sandwiches. Uh, sandwiches are a lot of fun. All right, so let's start with parallelisms. Parallelism Within the text, so if we were to read through, and I, I can't read this, I don't, I'm not, I don't know where the breaks are or anything like that, but if we were to read through a text, and this is really common in, in poetry, this parallelism, but we also see it in, in the rest of the genres, but we see it all the time, in, particularly in Psalms. So Psalm 136, verses 1 through 3, is an example of how uh, 
the psalmist continues to say basically the same thing over and over again. Uh, there's these parallels that, that take place. And then there's also repetition that we see here. But when we look at this, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. So now you have this give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to God. That's the parallel. He just said it once and now he just said it again, but he says it in a different way. We give thanks to, to, to Yahweh, to the Lord. Why? Because he's good. Yes. We give thanks to the Lord. Why? Because he is the God of gods and his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. There's another one, right? And this whole, this whole psalm, this is the easiest example, right? This is very low-hanging fruit as an example of parallelism. Uh, but it's, it is repeated ideas or phrases and words that will um, emphasize each other. And oftentimes, they will be on either side of, of another phrase like it is here, for his steadfast love endorsed forever. And there's a musical element to this as well. Um, Another aspect of parallelism would be in, in the creation story, right? Creation, whoops, I think something is stuck. I just broke the whiteboard, guys. All right, we'll just leave it. I'll erase this. Y'all don't have this memorized. Creation is a lot of fun, and there's this parallel that is less obvious, and it's more of a um, one within, within the literature itself and the ideas and how it works. We have the first three days of creation, days one, two, and three. What happens on day one? You guys remember? And God said, let there be light. What happens on day two? The firmament, right? There's separation there. The other cool thing about this, and this is part of the, 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 an aspect maybe of parallelism, is that there's a common theme of tearing and ripping apart here, right? So there's light and darkness, and then what does he do? He tears it apart, separates light and darkness. And then you've got um, waters below and waters above. What does he do? He tears them apart and makes a firmament, right? Then you have the waters below. What does he do with that? He tears them apart and makes the land, right? So there's this tearing that's taking place uh, constantly, even in the structure here. But yeah, so you, uh, basically what he, what he does when he does the firmament, right, is waters above creates the sky and the waters below, which is the earth. So he makes space, essentially, um, between the heavens and, and the earth. And then day three, right, he tears the waters apart and brings dry land, right? Okay, um, and we, actually we would say with water. Well, yeah. You have water here actually quite a bit. Anyways, um, then you have day four, you have day five, and you have day six. What does he make on day four? Do you remember? Sun, moon, the stars, right? The rulers. Sun, moon, and stars. Okay, what does he make on day five? Birds. And what else? And on day six, what does he make? Land animals and, and us, right? 
So, yeah. Land beasts and man. Right? So, do we see any sort of parallels here? Right? See, he creates a space. What's that? Yeah, exactly. Fish. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. There's a structure here. There's, a, there's an order. There's, uh, there's, there's parallels that are going on here. So yeah, he creates, he creates light, and then he populates the light, if you would. I like to think about it as uh, these are kingdoms. And then he puts kings in the kingdoms. Right? So light, sun, moon, and stars. The space between, that's the birds. And then, of course, below the waters with the fish. And then the land, he populates that with land beasts uh, and, and man. And now on day seven, he rests. So that's another example of a, a sort of parallel working in, in, the, in the text. Um, but there's, there's other aspects to that as well. Repetition is another one, right? Repetition, uh, where do we see repetition in the Bible? It seems like, wait a second, you just told me this. <laughs> Psalms, so yeah, I mean, even Psalm 136, he keeps saying your steadfast love endures forever. Easy, easy one for repetition. Genealogy, yeah, genealogies, continue, yep. This person begot this person, this person begot this person, yep. What else? Proverbs, a lot of similar proverbs, yeah, yep. The repetition piece um, highlights a little bit kind of the nature of the Bible and that circular, cyclical nature, right? The Bible loves to tell the same stories over and over again. In fact, we have repetition on multiple levels in the first couple chapters of Genesis. I mean, really, you read Genesis 1, even if you go all the way through 2-3, which is where we should go when we think about it, and then what happens right after that? Another creation account, right? He, he tells us about creation all over again. And, but he zooms in, so there's, there's this repetition. He tells the story once, and then he tells it again from a different angle. Um, the Judges story, we went through Judges here last year, and at times it's like, all right, here it is again, the same cycle, right? Israel is doing great, the land is at rest, and then they have idolatry, they start worshiping other gods, Yahweh gets angry, he sends a foreign nation in to oppress them, these many exiles, which is another big part of the repetition even throughout the whole Bible, um, these, these many exiles, and then uh, they call out and say, Lord, we're so sorry, they repent, and what does he do? He sends a judge, the judge kills the bad guys, the land is at rest, and then they start worshiping other gods again, Right? Six times in the book of Judges, we have that same exact cycle that goes through over and over again. So these are repetitions. So we want to pay attention to this because the repetition matters, and that's part of how we structure the text. Um, some of the, the language it, or the, um, the repeated phrases in the Judges story is, and Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, right? So if you're reading this, and this all makes sense, and you come to um, the end of the story of Ehud, and then it says, we move on, it says, and then Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. We say, ah, here, here's the next section, right? We're, we've just moved on. There's that internal structure 
just shows us how to move from one to the other. Uh, There's repetition structures all throughout, and we are to see them in the, the creation, fall, exile. That's sometimes there, sometimes not, but creation, fall, exile, redemption, and then new creation. This is the overarching theme of the Bible, and that plays itself out in repetitive ways all throughout. Uh, There are Exodus stories that repeat over and over again that we want to pay attention to. Uh, There are creation stories that that take place over and over again. In fact, the last part of, uh, in, in the book of Exodus, from 25 through 30, near the end of, I think it's 30, it might go to 31, but he's describing the tabernacle, right? And there are seven phrases, and God said to Moses, which is very similar to what this says in Genesis, and God said, let there be, but, and God said to Moses, da-da-da, and he goes on and he gives all these instructions for the tabernacle, and there's seven of them, and they actually do correspond to the days of creation. So if, if, if we're thinking, if we read the way that the Bible reads, when we see these sort of re- repeated phrases, say, oh, that sounds like this, because I've heard this phrase before, and the themes there actually line up, and then that actually infuses the tabernacle with all sorts of significance to say, man, Moses and and God saw the tabernacle as a heaven or a creation sort of event. The tabernacle in itself is like this new creation. And then we could go back to to Genesis and say, wow, the Garden of Eden and the world that is laid out in Genesis is the same thing as the tabernacle. You guys remember this? Maybe not. I don't know how long it's been. But if you think about the way the Garden of Eden is laid out, and these are all these are those, those repetition things. You have the world, right, that's created. You have the world. And then you have the land of Eden, right? You have the land of Eden, something like that. And then what do you have in Eden? It's actually east in Eden, a garden, right? You have a garden in Eden, east of Eden. And then, what do you have at the very center of the garden? Two trees, right? That we put right there at the center. That's, that's the tabernacle, right? You've got the outer courts. You have the world, for one, which is understood in, within the tabernacle, what's going on outside. And then you have the outer courts, which in the temple, it's also the same thing as the temple, the Gentiles could come in, right? And then as you move in to Eden, you move into the tabernacle itself, or the temple itself, and then as you move into the temple, you come to the Holy of Holies, which is where God dwells, and where God dwelt in the garden was at those trees, at the tree of life, and you know, there's a very particular reason for that. So you have a very similar structure with the tabernacle and with the Garden of Eden, and then we can know this for sure by the way the structure works in Exodus 25 to 30 or 31, that's 31, uh, that he lays out seven days of creation in building the, the tabernacle. So now we know how to read the tabernacle and the creation story as being similar. Okay, any questions on parallelism or repetition? You know, it's really cool. Yes and no. Um, I found out I was wrong with it. 
yes and no, he, he, repeats, he repeats this in Revelation. Because actually, the, the Holy of Holies is a perfect square, right? So if I could do that, it would be, I can't do that. But it's a perfect square. It's a cube. It's the same height, length, width, right? It's a big cube. So in Revelation, when we see, hey, the angel says to John, come on to this mountain, I'll show you the bride, <laughs> right? I'm going to show you the bride. Uh, and then he goes up on the mountain, and how does he describe the bride? It's this huge city. But it's, it's a city, but it's a city that he measures. And the measure of it, ready for my 3D art? I wish Eric was here. He'd be very impressed. Uh, ah, I messed it up. <laughs> Eric, there you are. That's, that's more like it. Right? <laughs> Well, that looks like a diamond, Eric. I thought about going into artistry and architecture, but I decided not to. Um, he describes the city as a cube, right? The bride is now described as a city, which is then described as a cube. And the cube is massive. And I've read books where it says, when this cube comes, it's going to plunk, sit on the earth. The earth is like, you know, this big, and the cube just kind of sits on top of it. Um, and it goes from, I think, Maine all the way down to South Texas. That's one dimension, and then it keeps going. But when we see the connections of what those measurements mean, it brings us back to the tabernacle because, and the temple because the Holy of Holies is used in that same, those same dimensions. It's just expanded. So when he says, um, now uh, the dwelling place of God is with man, right? And you are my people, and I am your God, and we are together. The tears are gone. He is saying that all of creation has now come into the Holy of Holies. Uh, we are, he is the presence. There's no need for, for light because his glory is there. Uh, and then he goes on to describe it, and he actually uses some language of, of Genesis as well to do that with the river and the tree of life is there. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's those sort of repetition, you know, shapes matter, measurements matter, um, especially within the structure of, of the text. Because there's no heading that says, hey, think of Revelation. Rather, it gives us a cube, and then it connects. All right. The next piece is, is chiasms. This is probably, if, if we think of, of structure of an essay, or the most simple structure, the most common structure, if you were to do anything, you have an introduction and a conclusion on either end, and then you have the body in the middle, right? The most important part of that, that letter or that essay is the body of, of what you're saying, which is, would be in the middle. Chiasms would be about as common to, to the structure of the Old Testament and the New Testament as that is for us. This is just how people thought, right? So chiasms work like this. Well, actually, I have examples. I don't need to write it out. I have examples there for you. All right, so I put the chiasm here from Genesis 2, 4, through, through chapter 3. So this is not the creation of chapter 1, but it is creation of Adam and Eve and all the way through the fall. So you have the creation of man, which is point A, 
And then point A at the top corresponds to A prime at the bottom, which is the punishment of man. All right? So you have this corresponding work that's going on there. And then it moves in. You have the creation of woman. And then the corresponding piece is the punishment of the woman. And then you have the serpent that comes onto the scene. And then C prime is the punishment of the serpent. And then at the very center, which is the body, this is the part that... um, for the most part, in chiasms, the, the structure is working around is to get to this, is that there is sin that entered the world, right? So the, the Hebrew mind, and, and the Greek mind also, would, uh, would, would read waiting for it to come back around, right? It's, it's like if you read to whom it may concern, you're waiting not only for a body, but also a conclusion. You know it's coming, uh, unless it's just really poorly written. So... The, the, the text that they read constantly or write constantly just looks like this, which is what a chiasm is. Um, it's a literary structure that highlights in, and, and you see these comparisons, you see these contrasts, and so on. We see another one. The whole first, um, first six chapters of Genesis is, a, is chiastic in structure where you have God's creation and that corresponds to God's decision to destroy creation you have Adam and Eve, and they are the first couple. They're married. And that corresponds to what happened with the sons of God and the daughters of men in chapter 6. It's the perversion of that unity, right? And then you have C, the birth of Adam's first son. And then you have the, the prime. C prime is the birth of Adam's son, Seth. So Cain and Abel, now they lead us right to the center once again, which is Cain's sinful descendants, right? So when we look at those 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 chapters, what drives the story forward, what's at the very center of the story is sin has gone rampant because of Cain and his descendants. It's awful. And it gets so bad, it actually reverses or um, flips or destroys or distorts all that was good up here. It replays itself in reverse order. It's like a decreation. Is really exactly what it is. It's a decreation. You have creation here, you have sin, and then a decreation all the way back to where there's, we're back to Genesis 1-1, essentially. The water covered the whole earth. So he has to tear it apart again, right, and get back, back to it. So that's an internal structure that, um, that they, would, they would just know to read that. And the Bible is packed full of them. In fact, one of the really cool things, and it's like multiple pages long, but John... In his gospel, you can have John, John 1 here, which is this glorious depiction of the Logos, the word that has put on flesh, that has dwelt with his people, that the darkness couldn't be there because he's overcome the darkness. In him was light, and the light was the life of men, and all, right, this glorious picture. And that actually corresponds to Revelation 21, or 22. It depends. 21, 22, 22, you kind of move into this conclusion piece, so it's right in there. John actually wrote the Gospel of John and Revelation as a two-part story. This is the story of the bridegroom, the husband who has come, and this is the story of the bride. And they actually work together all the way through and have different different things. With the resurrect, I think it's the resurrection right there at the center. So It's fascinating, right? And at the end of John, you have this, this resurrection, and you have 
the Spirit's work going on. And then at the very beginning of Revelation, you have this resurrected king, Jesus, who is now glorified with the eyes of fire and, and all of that. So chiasms are everywhere. They are really great. It's a lot of fun to try to find them and, and pull them out of the text. I think there's a chiastic structure here, and it really just allows the Bible to, to pop. It like goes to, to 3D. From my cube, which would just be a square to Eric's, where you can actually see dimensions to it. All right, so the, the last two would be inclusios and sandwiches. Inclusio is, is uh, it's another device that is used, and it's good for us to look for it because it shows oftentimes changes when you're reading through the passage that said, okay, we're, we are now moving to another idea. It, it, it help, it's helpful with transition. It also brackets for us um, passages that are meant to be seen together. An inclusio is a repetition of a phrase, a scene, right? It could look similar, uh, a set of characters, a set of words at the beginning and at the end of a particular passage. So a very easy one is Matthew chapter 7. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7. Uh, starting in verse 15 through 20, which I, I won't read at all, but 15 is, is kind of the, the intro. And then it's talking about beware of false prophets um, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are like ravenous wolves, right? This is the prologue. This is the introduction to this little section. Beware of them. And then he says this, you will recognize them by their fruits, okay? And then he goes in to, to explain the analogy with fruit and so on, right? Um, you'll recognize them by the fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? And then he goes on and talks about good fruit, bad fruit. And then in verse 20, he says, thus, you'll recognize them by their fruit. So you have the beginning, right after the little intro of what he's about to talk about, You'll recognize them by the fruit, and then he says it again. You'll recognize them by the fruit. That's an inclusio. It, it wraps that little section together that we say, oh, this is just a little unit that is working. And then we move to the next one, and the pericope is in the right spot. But if, if it's all laid out like this, right, and you read, you'll recognize them by the fruit, and you go through it, and you see it again, you say, oh, we just finished the section. You don't even have to read the next word. That's an inclusio. We finished the next section. And then, then you go on, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, right? Move on to that next verse as a different section. Uh, you have an inclusio with Jacob's life, which is more of a, a, a broad theme where Jacob's life, uh, the, the, the center of it, not so much with his, you have the birth with Jacob and Esau and the stew and the deception of, of Isaac, but Jacob's story really picks up when Esau wants to kill him and he leaves to go to Laban's right, his uncles. That's where we zoom in. It's really just Jacob that's focused on, on the story. And on his way, he sees the vision of God, right, that the ladder to heaven and the angels ascending and descending, and he calls this place Bethel, and he puts the stone there, and he memorializes it, and so on. So he's leaving Esau to go to Laban, and he has this vision of God. And then he goes, he does all the things with Laban, he gets tricked and deceived. Laban's a miserable human being, right, that, that steals uh, really 14 years of Jacob's life, making him work for his two daughters to, to be married. But eventually, Jacob's saying, I'm out of here. I'm going home. So he leaves Laban, right, and he goes back to Esau, which is how the story unfolds. And on his way back, he goes through the Jabbok, which is a crossing of water, and then he wrestles with God. There's another wrestling now. 
So you've got this, that's an occlusio on, on a greater theme or a greater stage. Uh, it's a big theme. Jacob moves from, from Esau, wrestle, or sees God, goes to Laban, goes from Laban, sees God, goes to Esau, right? So that's, and everything in between is the life of Jacob. And then shortly after that, we go to Jacob's children, and then Joseph takes center stage. The whole Bible is an inclusio. That's the cool thing, right? The Bible begins and ends very similarly. You have a creation, you have a new creation, you have a river, you have another river, you have a tree of life, you have the tree of life, you have God in the presence, you have God in the presence, uh, and, and dwelling with his people, dwelling with his people. I mean, it's, it's, it's the same story at the beginning, at the end. The whole Bible works as, as an inclusio, which is really cool because when you see everything inside of it is a unit, <laughs> that's how we should see it. It all works together as a unit, bracketed by the creation and the new creation. All right, the last thing, and I'll do questions after, after this last one, are sandwiches. Um, then we got context and a couple other little things. But the sandwiches, in going back to Mark 11, I won't go into the explanation of it. Um, I think I, I, I did preach on it a number of years ago when we were at Noah's, so it's on the website somewhere. But if we see that this story of Jesus cleansing the temple, and if we were to continue to read through it, we would then see a lesson learned from the fig tree, or a lesson from the fig tree. And we'd say, huh. Well, if I would have started at the beginning of chapter 11, triumphal entry, like the fig tree, Jesus just cursed a fig tree, right? And then you go to this totally different story that he's in the temple, he cleanses it, and then he comes back out and he sees the fig tree and there's a lesson that is given. The way sandwiches work is you have, like any good sandwich, you got two slices of bread and meat in the middle, right? The, the story of the fig tree is the slices of bread and the, the meat in the middle is the cleansing of the temple, now, how this works is it works together as a unit. Same thing with Jairus' daughter and the woman with the issue of blood. They're both 12 years, all, all sorts of, there's a sandwich there. Um, but the way it works is that the inside of the story interprets the outside, and the outside interprets the inside. They interpret each other. So when Jesus curses the fig tree, and we could do a word study on fig trees and see that that is like the tree of Israel, um, he's cursing the temple, right? Say it's not bearing fruit and pff, curses it. And oftentimes, well, Jesus, I mean, I've, I've read commentaries. Jesus, he was angry here. Uh, he, he, didn't, he was acting rashly. He didn't know what he was doing. Are you kidding me? He's doing this very intentionally because he's about to go into the temple and, and cleanse the temple and say destruction is coming to the temple in the same way that the fig tree is cursed, the temple will be cursed. It's the same action. And then when he leaves, they see the fig tree saying, it's withered, it's gone. What, how did that happen? And, it's like, and the same thing will happen to the temple. And if we keep reading, we end up into the Olivet Discourse where the disciples are pretty excited about how great the temple looks. And Jesus says, there's, there's not a stone that will be left upon the other. The whole thing's coming down. It's cursed, right? So those stories, that sandwich actually interprets each other. They, they help us understand. With the, and oftentimes there's elements within those stories like the cursing or the cleansing or, or parallel. Uh, with Jairus, uh, Jairus' daughter, a girl who died, she was 12 years old. And then in between that, you have a woman with the issue of blood who was bleeding for 12 years. So then you've got this numerical connection. Then he comes back to Jairus' daughter. Both end up being healed and so on. So it's, it's, really, it's, it's really cool when you see structures. And Mark's gospel loves sandwiches, right? There's sandwiches all over the place. Big sandwiches, little sandwiches. <laughs> sandwiches for everyone. Okay. Um, the last piece here that I want us to look at 
uh, the context. And this is this one I'm not going to, I wasn't planning on spending a lot of time here, uh, but it's because we're going to continue to come back to it, right? It is not something that you just explain. It is something that you, you just live in this, right? You learn how the context works, and that's all good Bible reading has um, is taking place within the proper context. So if we see context that looks something like this, this is the work that we do. Just all of these circles that continue to move out. We want to start at the center. Okay, so when we come to a passage like Jesus cleansing the temple, say, what's the context here of this passage? And we would find out that it is, oh, it's part of a sandwich because on either side of the story, we have the fig tree, right? That is, that is the immediate piece. Um, and then you move out to, if, depending on the, the type of passage that you're in, you can go from a verse or a couple verses out to a paragraph. So you just want to expand out. Then eventually you go to the entire book. Like, what is Mark doing? How does this, how does this story fit into the whole scheme of Mark? And then you go to uh, the author's other writings. So if, if we were in John, we see something in John, we'd want to go to 1st, 2nd, 3rd John or Revelation because John footnotes himself constantly, right? He's, he's referencing himself. He's alluding to the same thing. So we want to go there. And then we want to expand to the whole Testament, New Testament, and then to the whole other Testament, the whole Bible. So you move from the, the verse all the way out. You want to say, how does this fit? Within the inclusio of the Bible, how does this story fit? Um, and then from there, you want to actually move outside of the text of the Bible um, and, and begin to think about what was happening, happening historically at this time. So, for example, the, the Bible doesn't tell us that uh, the Jews were being self-centered and not letting the Gentiles come in, right? We don't, we don't know that. We don't even really know from that exact passage what the posture was. But when we read some of the historical records through different dictionaries about Second Temple Judaism and all this, it helps us paint the picture of what's going on, right? So you want the, the geographical background, you want the historical background, you want a cultural background. All of this stuff informs our passage. Okay. Um, I'm going to finish up the rest of it next time. Are there any questions 